TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat explores the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, eating, moving, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best in your sleeping as well as your neurology. To help me, it's a great pleasure I introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Hi, Paul. I'm well. Fantastic. We're combining two pillars in one today. Okay. Doubly so, good. Okay. So what are we doing today? Well, uh, I guess what we're going to be talking about is uh, the sort of uh, subject that maybe people, a lot of people know a little bit about. Okay. I'd say very few people know a lot about it, except for our next uh, guest, of course, yep. uh, and particularly what sort of problems can derive from these sort of issues. Now, we're sitting here. It's a beautiful Melbourne day. Looking out, I can't see a cloud in the sky well, right now. Well, that's Melbourne. I mean, so, Melbourne's like that all the time, uh, isn't Of course it, it is, yeah. especially to all the Sydney listeners. That's right. Um, and we're, as we know, we, we, we've, you've got a nice, well-ventilated home, but, uh, we went, we were in uni once we were early in practice and, uh, you know, close to the, to the poverty line. So our accommodation wasn't always as comfortable as what it is now. We've had many, a uni flat, are you a uni flat guy or are you a? No, I actually sort of, uh, stayed pretty close to the family. So no, I was, I was one of those who stayed close to home, whereas, you know, had all these interstate chiropractors come in and. You know, had to look after themselves, and I was uh, pretty slack, really, and stayed at home, was cared for all the time. And, well, yeah, it was the, interesting. The, the, the luxuries of home were just too good. Well, yeah, I certainly right. did very soon and early in practice, probably in about the, over about four years, I think I lived in five different properties. Oh, my goodness. And one, one lasting uh, image of that, in fact, it's funny how the, the sense of smell brings your memories back. Okay, yes. The smell of something that's dusty and damp, that brings me back to my early accommodation. Your temporal lobe is working of your brain. Totally. Yeah, fantastic. So, so yeah, just, memory. you know, that, that rising damp was an issue, I think, in every okay. home that I lived in right. uh, in the early days. And I think I always seemed to have that, that bedroom that was right at the back of the house that didn't seem to get any sunlight, barely had a window uh, at all. Right. And, uh, and I guess that's the smell that, of, of my, you know, 20s. Uh, really okay and i guess that's the question that we're going to uh be speaking about is you know can these sorts of environments be bad for our health well that's a, a, a perfect opportunity for me to segue into our introduction of our of our health expert which is dr tanya ash tanya is the founder and medical director of vitality hub clinics in both param and Mal- malvern she's a melbourne uni medicine graduate as has 21 years of clinical experience including 11 years as an integrative medical specialist Tanya is also a fellow of the A5M, the Australasian Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and one of her passions in practice is evaluating chronic fatigue syndrome, and now she specializes in treating patients acutely unwell for mold and Lyme disease. Hi there, Tanya. How are you going? I'm well. Thanks, Paul. Invitation to join you today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the call, and um, I suppose, you know, there's been a a fair bit of interest and anticipation with the show because it's something which I think is is really not commonly known about. So, Tanya, to, to begin with, can you explain to our listeners, for those who are exposed to rising damp and mould, should they sometimes be worried? Yeah, absolutely they should be. Um, I think it's it's a medical issue that's been very glossed over by, by 
the wider medical community. Um, even in, in my, um, my integrative medical community, this is still a very new area to Australia. Um, so I, I really fell into this area um, because I've been treating chronic fatigue patients um, a lot of the last 11 years. And I was curious that a couple of them had lived in, um, one had known, had been known to have a, a new house that uh, had faulty plumbing okay. and, and a mold problem had ensued. And even though it was gradually and eventually all remediated, she, she remained um, unwell for, for years afterwards. And, and I was, you know, in, in assessing her, I could see that, you know, she was in a state of chronic inflammation and all her hormones were suppressed. And um, I was absolutely perplexed by it. And then, then I had another family who, um, who, who all suffered from chronic fatigue in Melbourne and they eventually discovered they had a rising damp problem and, um, and had their entire home um, remediated for mould. Um, and my... Um, that my the daughter of that family did eventually move out. Um, well, she she moved out as soon as she knew there was a problem. Um, but all of the family re remained ill despite having remediated the house. So I, I was left wondering, you know, what on earth is going on with these patients? Okay. So mm -hmm. so we're talking we're talking mold. So you know molds, mushrooms. You know, can you explain exactly what is a mold? Is it that sort of white dusty thing that you when you pull up the carpet that's been wet for a month, is that is that what a mould is? Um, yeah, so molds are a type of fungus. And um, as you probably, if you set an examinate or even you had something growing in the fridge, they have those those delicate little filaments that all grow into each other and um, and it's a way of transporting nutrients around um, the mould as, as it sort of grows in a colony. Um, but it also has invisible spores um, that have the potential to go out into the air. Um, we, can, we inhale them and they can go in our homes, they can go into books and soft furnishing and clothing as well. So that's, that's the invisible element of all of this. Um, there's also, um, all it takes is 24 hours of unremediated water, water damage uh, in a in your office or in a home or in a school um, for Pomol to start growing. Wow. So it doesn't take much, basically. They're, they're very opportunistic organisms. And, you know, people say Melbourne has a lot of rain, but, I mean, today is not an example of that, of course, but, you know, we're, I suppose, in, a, in an environment where that can happen. Tanya, can we just go back to the, the you know, the, the original two case studies you talked about? Yeah. And, you know, if we go through that scenario with those patients who have chronic fatigue and and they end up in your door. Is that because they've gone through many other channels with no, no solutions? How, how does it happen that they arrive in your clinic? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Um, these patients really fall in the too hard basket of medicine. They typically have a, a, a puzzling myriad of symptoms that, that, can be, that reflect um, the multi-system involvement. So for, to give you an example, you know, beyond chronic fatigue and, and the red flag of fibromyalgic pain, um, they, you know, they often have a flat or anxious mood. Um, they can have very unusual neural, nervous system symptoms or neurological symptoms of um, numbness and tingling, muscle weakness. Um, they are often susceptible to electric shocks. 
Um, Some of them exhibit very bizarre muscle spasms in the body. I have one poor patient who literally jumps out of her her chair periodically, which gives both of us a fright. And and then, you know, and then the gastrointestinal symptoms, sleep disturbance. um, I've even seen um, hematological disturbances. So, So by the time patients end up on my doorstep, They've often seen five plus specialists in addition to several GPs, and they're they're, they're just desperate to, to have an answer and, and, and treatment. And I suppose that's is that for our listeners. Is that on the grounds? I suppose because of the multi system organ presentation, they've gone from say, you know, the neurological symptoms to the neurologist, and then they come to a sort of regime of treatment for that. Then, but but con, you know, at the same time, they've still got. Um, problems in other systems, respiratory or whatever, and they see the respiratory physician. Is that why they're seeing all these specialists, but no one's sort of perhaps connecting together uh, regards what's going on? Can you explain that to our listeners, how it works? You're absolutely right, Paul. No, it's, um, I think one of the one of the issues of, of conventional medicine, you know, and, and we, we've, it's become so subspecialised now okay. that okay. specialists tend to see, you know, symptoms, in, you know, through their through their rose-coloured glasses, so to speak, and they're not looking at the, the bigger picture with it. And um, having worked with this area of um, what we call biotoxin illnesses in the last three years, which covers things like Lyme disease and mould, um, you, you just you start to, these symptoms actually all, all run together. And when you start giving the patients the questionnaires around the symptoms, you know they end up ticking so many boxes and. It, the diagnosis has now become quite easy for me now that I know what to look for and how to, and how to investigate it. Well, Paul, this is a real issue, isn't it, yeah. with, with healthcare? Because we do have a situation where, as you said, that your, your neurologist will focus on your nerves, your gastroenterologist yeah. will focus on your gut, but really, that's not the body's not just the sum of its individual parts. It works as a whole, and sometimes we need to take a more holistic view of these things. Well, there's that too, and it's also you know the, the fall down in communication. Because yes, at the end of the day, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, we've seen it with our poor patients as well, and sometimes we're guilty of it too, perhaps not communicating with other practitioners in the context as well. They've, the patient comes in, they've got these multi-system problems, and they give you all the sort of layers of each practitioner, and then how do we put it together? How do we connect, how do we connect and communicate? And, and, it, and obviously can be very frustrating from the, from the patient's perspective. And the, and the, the provider as well. It can get extremely yes. confusing. Now, now, Tanya, you're not what you, we would describe as your average GP. I, I don't think uh, that many GPs out there would have treatment of mould uh, up high on their you know, case presentations. What makes you different? And I understand being an integrative GP. What makes an integrative GP different than the, the standard GP out there? has got an inquiring mind and I'm a very conceptual thinker and I I really fell into this area of integrated medicine luckily 11 years ago after I was introduced to it from a colleague. Um, I went through adrenal fatigue myself at uni but that slowly compounded over time. Can you can you explain about why you're going on the adrenal fatigue? Yep so um, I, I guess Burnout is perhaps a, a, um, a term that the general community is more right. familiar with. Yep. So just, you know, the demands of, of medical school, um, just, um, and I'd also always been a person that sort of was very susceptible to catching lots of infections. And I just found my health gradually deteriorated through medical school and beyond. And when I when I was out working as a GP, 
um, which I did my fellowship in originally, uh, I, I found myself struggling with fatigue and ironically, it's been also the number one presenting complaint to GPs wow. and I found myself really having a medical degree and a fellowship as a GP but, but unprepared to help to have manage these poor fatigued patients and yeah. you do the usual round of blood tests and, and, and basic physical exam and, and really I found myself saying I think I don't have the answers, um, perhaps see the naturopath down the road and that was very disempowering to me as a health professional. Um, so luckily 11 years ago I um, I was actually working in cosmetic medicine and um, my boss turned out to be one of the pioneers of integrative medicine in Melbourne and he he um, basically rang up and made me sign up to do um, the primary ACNAM, uh, the primary course with ACNAM, which is an integrative training college in Melbourne. Yes, and yes, um, yeah. I did a four-day intensive course and that was my baptism of fire into this area. And I've never looked back. I just, it was like um, finally finding my niche in medicine. It was really wow. a case of uh, heal or heal thyself, I guess, and you needed to go the roundabout way to get there. Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, but... Um, Sometimes, yeah, I'm grateful for the journey. I've learned a lot from my own health and, and helping my chronic fatigue patients. So getting back to the idea of moulds, what, what environment do moulds thrive in? Obviously, it's it's moisture that they need. What what other things do they need? Um, I guess as far as Australia goes, you know, particularly up, um, you know, New South Wales and, and, and further north, um, just those more humid conditions um, mould thrives on. Um, we've obviously had some floods in, in Australia, such as in Brisbane, when the Brisbane River flooded. So mould's been an enormous problem throughout Brisbane as a result of that. Um, but but it's, you know, it's not just old houses that are the problem with, with rising damp and full subfloor ventilation. Um, the way they're slapping up a lot of new building homes and apartments now, um, we're yes. seeing a lot of corners being cut with plumbing, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, true. Yeah. And all it takes is a, you know, a leaking plumbing connection or pipe, um, and you know, and, and then we've got mold growing. And I've, I've had a lot of patients <coughs> who've got sick living in new apartment blocks for, oh. for that reason. And it's, not, it's not as though every time there's a plumbing problem, you know about it. You know, if if the yes. if the water's sort of you know seeping down in the wall behind you to the apartment below, you know, yes. you might not even be aware of of any indication of rising damp whatsoever, or at least not till it's well down the track. And hasn't Tanya raised a really interesting point? Because I think before we enter this discussion, Anthony, we would have been thinking it's houses like you described earlier, the university days, old houses, but you know. With the development of estates now in areas and the population sprawl moving out and, you know, volume builders developing areas quickly, timelines, deadlines, you know, there's... Well, there's, plumbing, you know, plumbing, plumbing is expensive. If you've ever re- renovated a house, you know, the most expensive part of uh, a renovation is the stuff you don't see. Yes. So uh, okay. if people are going to take shortcuts, developers, and try and get a product out there, you know, under budget, if they're going to cut corners, that's I imagine that's going to be the area where they're going to cut. Of course, we're not saying all developers are bad, though. Uh, no, we're not. No, yes, no, let's no. make that clarification yeah, for all developers out there. That's right, exactly. But it is an interesting point because there, is, there are certainly timelines, and I think a lot of people would enter this discussion thinking they've got to be old, mouldy sort of houses. But what Tanya's alluding to is either new apartments who are, that, that perhaps have, have been done very quickly. And, you know, look at some of the, the TV shows now that sort of encourage renovations. Don't you think, Tanya? Overnight. Mm-hmm. We can do it in three days. We can do a room in, in a day. Do the plumbing yourself. Yeah, <laughs> DIY plumbing. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it, there are potential ramifications, I suppose, of that. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. Tanya, if we, if we also talk about Lyme disease uh, and, and what actually is Lyme disease for our, for our listeners? Sure. Um, so Lyme disease, I guess, is quite famous um, because it was named after the town of Lyme in Connecticut in the US, okay. um, which, which came to uh, media attention back in the 80s um, when a great proportion of the town, this small country town, became chronically unwell, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgic. Um, and when investigators went in, they um, they eventually pieced together that it is in a tick endemic area of the US and right. that, that these patients actually had, uh, had caught Borrelia from tick bites. Um, So they have the the chronic infection of chronic borreliosis, which um, produces its own biotoxins, incites chronic inflammation and, you know, and shuts down the whole hormone axis. Very very similar to to what mould does. It's it's all the same biotoxin pathway. So so the actual pathogenesis is very, the pathogenesis is pretty much the same, but just a a different sort of cause. Is that what you're suggesting between Lyme and mould? Yeah, you're talking about something from a tick bite rather than something that you've inhaled through the air, essentially. Okay. Um, you know, there's other examples of biotoxins like stingers in jellyfish, for example, or um, people who've eaten contaminated fish like ciguatera or, or contaminated with hysteria in the US. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, and, and, and good old botulinum toxin, is, which, it, which everyone knows is Botox now. Yes, yes it's, uh, it's had a rebirthing really, hasn't it? It's you know? uh, <laughs> gone through periods of uh, refashion and uh, it's, it's back on board I think now, is it? Or I'm not too sure. But So, so obviously yeah. Lyme disease and, you know, uh, unfortunately if you lived in the, uh, the town of Lyme, I don't, I don't wow. think you'll let that's a, that's a, you know, they'll have... Hard to shake that um, uh, conundrum, won't yeah. they? But but it, it's it's been known to have, uh, be you know occur in Northern America. It it's now seems to be that we are getting cases in Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the main vectors of ticks is birds, and they you know they fly all right. over the planet. Yeah. So um, yeah, we believe uh, tick-borne out disease is is. You know, it's all over the world now. Yeah. Um, certainly in Australia, we've in the last, um, we do have studies going back to the 1970s on its incidence in Australia, including in the um, uh, Medical Journal of Australia. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Peter Main, who's a, a Lyme literate physician in New South Wales, which is a tick endemic area in Lauriton. Uh, he, he's been treating Lyme patients for about 20 years now, has a wealth of experience. He's, he's been one of my mentors in this area. And um, he, he's published some definitive papers on, on patients who haven't travelled outside of Australia um, who, for instance, his one paper that he published last year, he actually punched biopsied. Um, the patient came in with an acute tick bite okay. and they punched biopsied the, the skin and removed the tick and both... Um, both the patient and the tick were evaluated for the tick-borne disease that, um, that, that they were carrying and, you know, it was positive wow. for, for borreliosis and, and some other co-infections for, for both. Um, and he's repeated this with several patients. So absolutely, Lyme disease is endemic in Australia. Um, it really is time that the general medical profession catches up. Um Dr. Chris Bagley, he's our chief medical officer in Australia. Last year, um, they his committee um, 
has been investigating uh, Lyme disease in Australia, tick-borne disease, and they have conceded that we have a Lyme like illness in Australia that requires further studies and investigation. Okay, and I, I suppose these wheels turn a bit slowly, but in, in your practice, uh, what sort of percentage of patients are you starting to see coming through with, say, Lyme versus mould? Is that sort of um, now becoming sort of, I mean, you've alluded to it sort of a, especially you're moving towards. Is that what you're mainly seeing nowadays? I'm, but yeah, most of my new patients have, have one or the other or both. Um, we know that the patients who get sick from, who are vulnerable to biotoxin illnesses are, are roughly 25% of the population who have these, and it's a genetic vulnerability, um, they essentially have these defective um, immune response genes called HLA genes, um, also associated with celiac disease and autoimmunity. Yes, yes, um, yes. So unfortunately, genes play a big role in, in, in the people who get sick from it. So, Tanya, the, uh, you mentioned uh, with the, the ticks about biotoxin. Um, can you explain exactly what a biotoxin is? Is it that the tick stays in the skin or in the body of the person who's been exposed to the tick and the toxin continues to to run, to circulate through the body? Is that the way it works? No, not necessarily. Um, yes, ticks can attach to the skin and not be noticed for a while. Um, ticks love nice, warm areas, so they often curl, um, crawl up someone's scalp, for example, wow. um, uh, or, you know, up sleeves and, and cuffs and so on. Um, so, you know, more most people will normally realise there's a tick there because the body starts to react with inflammation and, and, and remove it. Um, ticks need to be removed very carefully. Uh, they, they inject this saliva through their little um, proboscis, which is like a which is like a cannula into a blood vessel. It's right. essentially nature's dirty needle. No sterilization there, Tanya. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, um, so if you're ever going to remove a tick, um, it needs they're, they're actual special tick removal kits, and and they're great. A really good idea for any campus or bush walkers to always have one with them handy. Because um, it basically stops you squeezing the body of the tick and pushing more saliva right. in, in, through into the bloodstream. Um, but it's, you know, once you've removed the tick, um, the problem is those biotoxins um, and, and 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 actual infections, because um, it's not just Borrelia that it can spread. There's about uh, 10 other bacterial infections, um, several parasitic infections, viruses that can be transmitted as well. So it's, it literally is a cocktail that the, of um, infections that the tick can transmit. Um, so it's both the infections and the, these bugs, you know, bacteria, parasites, viruses, producing um, these chemicals called biotoxins as well that, that incite the chronic inflammatory response. So, so obviously, you mentioned about the special kits to remove the the ticks. If someone doesn't have that uh, one of those kits, how would they practically remove a tick? And I'm assuming that by the time they see you, most of the ticks are actually been removed or fallen off. Well, most people, the ticks fall off. Um, so, Tanya, can you just repeat that? Just, just echo to the last bit there. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a minority of patients who actually know that they've had a tick bite, who, who, who we finally diagnose with, with tick-borne disease. But right. It's usually about 10% of patients. So, yes, for most people, they, they drop off by themselves. Yes. Um, and But if you don't have a tick, special tick removal kit, even if you just, you know, pull out a pair of tweezers and, and um, just try and pull it out... Um, around the whole thing rather than sort of squeezing it halfway and inject right. it, which is squashes its stomach and pushes out more saliva. <laughs> so gently, gently. Gently, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, gently, gently, yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm sure there's some really good YouTube videos on this. Okay. So it sounds like obviously moulds and ticks uh, make up a large part of your practice. Can you just run through again, you know, as far as symptomatic presentations, are they both similar? And if they are, how do you go about determining if someone has a tick problem, if they have a mole problem, or indeed something else? Absolutely. Presentations are extremely similar to each other. Um, I mean, yes, there's an enormous overlap of symptoms because, as I said earlier, it's the same biotoxin pathway that, you know, the body reacts with us in the same way with inflammation and hormone suppression. Yeah. Um, so for me, the key is really taking a good history. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm really probing on mould exposure, including at any point in their past, you know, past life and growing up. So um, even if they've been exposed... Work, home, school, you know, um, so really probing that in detail. Even if they've been exposed to moulds, you're saying when they were quite young, they can have the symptoms years later. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Wow. That's absolutely um, the problem with these gen genetically vulnerable people, as I said, 25% of the population, um, they don't, they can't, their immune system doesn't function to clear the biotoxins from the, from the bloodstream, so they recirculate indefinitely, inciting this chronic inflammation and hormone suppression. Um, so as far so going back to what I was saying, taking the good history is paramount. And as far as ticks go, it's it's around living in, or visiting tick endemic areas. Um, have they been keen bushwalkers, campers? Have they worked with animals or worked in a vet surgery? Um, really trying to tease it out that way, and and then and then doing um, doing investigations to to cover both because because there are patients who cross over between the two categories. And Anthony, I think that this is a really good learning point for us as well as other practitioners that if we're having patients with chronic fatigue, we really need to layer the case history questions to see what's been happening to them in the last, not month, six months, 12 months, but even possibly 10, 15 years. Yeah. Because if they've gone everywhere and there's been areas where they've been exposed to that may have seeded some of these sources of um, foreign bodies, well they've been just growing through their body and system, I suppose, Tanya, and, and they manifest uh, symptomatically when they do. And really, unless someone like yourself looks at it and then goes further into sort of evaluating, we're, we're, they're really not going to – they could potentially have that for the whole life without really knowing. Is that a fair comment? It's true. I think there's many patients – with the label of fibromyalgia, you know, who, who see rheumatologists for many years and just get put on, um, you know, pharmaceutical medication without ever addressing the root cause. Uh, and I certainly not am aware that, you know, there are many patients with rheumatoid arthritis um, and fibromyalgia who, who, for instance, get worse over winter and you wonder about them living in a mouldy house and, and things being worse over winter, for yeah. example. 
So like a, in the context of a seasonal pattern. So that's a, maybe <laughs> another clue for our listeners, perhaps if, if they find that, you know, seasonally certain times, especially winter times and more damp times, they get worse, that, that perhaps they may need to do some reinvestigations. Is that a, a message? Okay. Of course, you and I as chiropractors, the first thing we would think about in those situations is that they're not moving as much in winter, you know, less likely to be physically active. That's probably a factor. But yes, we've got to think about these other, you know, these other factors as well. Well, again, I mean, as, as chiropractors, we try and hunt the cause. Absolutely. And, and if, we've, if, this is, if the cause is not related to the spinal nervous system specifically, well, you know, there's other, other causes that could be associated with. And certainly this is one area that I'm sure is going to interest a lot of people around the world in the context of this sort of work. Uh, so we've, if just let's moving along, we've got now identified that a patient, for example, has issues with mold exposure. There's rising damp. Um, it's hard, obviously, to uh, control that problem, as as we know. What are your tips? What what should someone do if they if they've got a mold issue in their home? How can they clean out their home? Okay, the answer is absolutely right. Um, there are a few organisations, um, for instance. Um, I often recommend to my patients, once I know about it, I'm I'm aware of a mold history in their home, um, I'll engage the services of someone like Cameron Jones in Melbourne, who's a PhD microbiologist who specialises in in mold uh, assessments and remediation. Um, So he's extremely thorough. He'll he'll come into someone's home or workplace and he will use infrared to look for water damage hidden away in things like roofs and ceiling and wall cavities. Yeah. Um, he will measure the spore, mould spore counts in every room of the house and compare it with outside as a control. He will culture the moulds in his laboratory and, and then provide a very comprehensive report on what, what species grow, including some of the nastier ones like Aspergillus and Stachybotrys. Um, he, he writes an extremely comprehensive report um, at the end of all of this that, that then classifies the home into severity categories. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one poor patient several years ago who, who's, whose rental home was essentially uninhabitable right. and he, he rang her saying, you know, basically get out of here. Wow. And when it was remediated, they were all suited up and with masks and, you yeah. know, it was it was, yeah. all, it was quite extraordinary. And we found some active uranium at the bottom of your, your bathroom. <laughs> oh, it's no. Like that, isn't it? It's like yeah. a, yes, a, a, an alert, a major sort of alert. But see, Tanya, you've answered something else for me here because I was, I was curious to know how you, how we described earlier with the multiple specialists looking from a generic medical model and how, you know, the communication breakdown sometimes can mean that patients get caught out a little bit. But I was curious to know how you would go into the homes and sort of sort this out. So this is a really important part of your overall management plan of your patients. Is, is that correct? It's, it's the first part of this patient is to assess the crime and remediate it. Unfortunately, they don't recover. Um, from this, what we call the chronic inflammatory response syndrome, unless uh, unless we remove the, the ongoing exposure, it's absolutely paramount. So, when when one of these specialised companies comes in to remediate the home, um, often the they're often told to leave the home during the remediation process. Quite often, uh, unless it's not too severe, and they put in often put in industrial strength HEPA filters to, to um, suck up mould spores. They carefully seal off areas so that there isn't 
um, cross-contamination and mould spoils into other rooms of the house. Um, if you've got things like ducted aircon and, and heating, that, that can be disastrous because it can disseminate through the whole mm, home very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, things, you know, when there's um, going, going into cavities, wall cavities that are mouldy, obviously that all has to be sealed off and remediated very carefully. And the problem we see time after time is is, is patients aren't aware of, of how serious mould can be, um, nor, nor builders and tradespeople. And, you know, they often come in, patch up a few panels, yes, suck yes. up some mould and, and think, you know, everything's fine and dandy. But the, the invisible part of this equation is the mould spools that, that, that go into, um, you know, books and clothing and soft furnishings and, and people keep inhaling them and stay, stay chronically unwell. So it's a really serious problem that needs to be managed very, very carefully. And, and it is patients don't recover if you don't remediate. It's, it's interesting, Tanya, because this feels a bit like um, checking for asbestosis, doesn't it, really, in many ways, you know, and maybe this sort of awareness that you're trying to send this message out for might start to change things around a little bit too in that way. Because isn't it similar in the sense that when asbestosis has been detected, there's no halfway about it. It's either got to be taken out and thereby professionally done because if it's not done properly, uh, if the asbestos then floats into the air, we've got, we actually end up being with a, with a more serious problem. It feels very similar to that in this sort of scenario. Is, is that accurate? I do. I totally agree with that. It needs to be managed in, in virtually the same way. Yeah, um, and, and what I find extremely disappointing is that, um, you know, patients who aren't aware of this, um, who, 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 you know, go, go and try and remediate using their home and contents insurance, um, insurance companies will ah. never educate the patient on, on, you know, on remediation being done carefully in the health list. Right. It's always, always whitewashed. And, and the you know the, the cheapest possible solution offered to them. So it really is up to the individual to to be, to know about this and, and to um, stand in their power to insist that it be done properly to protect them and their families ongoing. So so that's that's an interesting thought. I didn't even think of that. But is this is something that you could possibly claim on your uh, home and contents insurance? Yes, yes, it is. There you go. Okay. Well, I think we've opened up another Pandora's box there because uh, <laughs> those insurance guys, it's, uh, you know, they've got to earn their keep. And, uh, you know, we all know that we seem to be paying our premiums all the time. But, hey, you know, That's it's right. got to go both ways. And, you know, and seriously, this is a serious medical condition. Absolutely. And uh, at the end of the day, it's um, – look, I, I alluded to earlier, Tanya, you know, the, the, the wheels roll very slowly. But unless we sort of get this message out, it's, it's, it's going to – it's going to take a long time, isn't it? And I think you, you've, you're speaking at a few other seminars, aren't you, around this sort of topic? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, this week I'm speaking at the Building Biologists Association on this topic, so I'm sure there'll be some lively discussion amongst the, the building biologists who, who, who are trained to, to do um, mould assessments in homes. Um, by the way, I highly do recommend people considering building biologists for, for a general home check, not just for mould, but, you know, for looking at um, EMR, uh, in the home, any other outgassing chemicals, and so on. I right. think um, I think it's one of the one of the best health checks you can do. Actually, is get your home assessed. Okay, yeah. I'm going to have to ask you just for our listeners what is they're probably going to wonder what is a building uh, what is a building biologist and what is the EMR. Uh, so, building biologist, um, building biology, I believe, came out of the US. Um, Nicole Bajulsma. Um, 
I think was the first trained building biologist. She lives in Melbourne and she she teaches um, other people to be building biologists uh, in Melbourne now. And, and there are many naturopaths who, who, who've got a crossover into this area, interestingly, such as Nicole. Okay. Uh, Lucinda Coran is another another um, colleague who um, has a is an amazing building biologist as well. And she. Um, they're just very active in the community, you know, getting the message out there um, that it's just it's just one of the invisible things we don't think of about that we can be keeping us sick is what's going on in our home. And we, as far as EMR, which is electromagnetic radiation, you know, we live in a, an EMR suit these days of mm. between our mobile phones, all, all the um, enormous number of um, mobile found towers that have sprung up all over the city and in, in rural areas, um, you know, our computers, um, our wireless connections. We, um, EMR sensitivity is, is something I, I see particularly in this, this um, biotoxic population as well. Just they, they have both intolerance of EMR and also multiple chemicals as well. So that, that, that for me is another red flag for a biotoxin illness when someone presents to me with those symptoms. And, and also, Tanya, just with the distinction between, say, the building biology role with the assessment, and you mentioned I think it was Cam, Cam Jones earlier, and his microbiology role, what, is, yep. is there a difference between their roles? I guess the main point of difference is that Cameron specialises in mould assessments and remediation solely, whereas a building biologist does. Um, they have a, a quite a huge checkpoint list that they run through in a home yeah, beyond beyond a mould assessment. Okay. You know, outgassing chemicals, measuring EMR and so on. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying the distinction. Now, Anthony, we've come to the part of our podcast on Backchat, The Impactor. Yes, absolutely. We don't like to. I mean, we're we're delighted to hear all the wealth of information that our guests, such as Tanya, have uh, given us today. But it's nice to get an insight on them as well as people. Absolutely correct. So, Tanya, we want to ask you a specific question from yourself, and I think you might have maybe talked a bit about something a bit earlier. But in the context of a moment, incident, or influence that perhaps changed your life. And certainly push you not only to be a high achiever, achiever in, in the work you do, but really in the context of uh, really honing in on, on a specialty, which is something where you're probably not going to get a lot of support from the medical fraternity, let's be honest, um, and you'll probably get more uh, barriers and support. So you'd have to be fairly passionate in this area. So what sort of makes you tick? To uh, achieve this sort of work, if you pardon the pun about the tick, of course. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was yes. unintentional. No, that right? was oh, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, oh, yeah, was it right. We no, scripted that one, didn't you? No, no, we didn't. Let's be honest. People know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I guess as I alluded to earlier, going through chronic fatigue myself was was certainly gave me a push to, to start training in this area. Um, but, I, but I've always been a person who he loves to do the detective work and, and, and put it, weave the whole picture together. I've always been wired that way. Um, I've always been a conceptual learner. And when I was a GP and also in hospital years, in the old days of paper files, I used to be flummoxed that you would have patients with these files, several books thick, and 
you know, crossing over many specialties, you know, from in a hospital setting. And I used to think to myself, my goodness, how on earth does this whole picture fit together? You know, there must be common threads in all of this. Um, and then I worked as a psych- psychiatric registrar for a year okay. back in my hospital days, um, which which I found fascinating. Um, and I, at that time, I remember one day I was preparing for a journal club and I was looking at a, a, a study um, analysing um, the neurotransmitters. Okay. So they're the, you know, they're the hormones that make us feel good and help us to sleep and so on, like your dopamine, serotonin yeah. and so yes. on. Um, and I, there was a study on, on measuring this in um, patients with schizophrenia and bipolar. And, okay. and I remember thinking to myself, why on earth aren't we doing this in our psych patients? You know, why are we guessing with medications when we don't actually know their biochemistry? Um, so I think all, <laughs> all these little yeah. things started to add up for me. And when I... Um, did the primary course with it ACNAM 11 years ago, I was like, oh, hallelujah, this yes, is this yeah. is evidence-based medicine. This is how you work up a patient from a foundational level upwards. And um, the very next Monday I started started practising it and, and, and went and trained as, as, as much as I could in this area uh, here in, in the US. Look, I think <laughs> I've also done the ACNAM course, I think I did it in 99, I think, or early 2000s, and it's sort of... Uh, was that bridge to sort of make us realise that the substrate, the biochemistry, we, we almost almost have to start with that in many ways. And if we actually as, as, attend to that, gee whiz, you know, we might find that a lot of our patients actually get better very quickly. Is that, from your years of experience, do you sort of concur with that? And have you, and I suppose, you know, is that as much your, your challenge in practice when you're seeing uh, a lot of your patients coming in with without sort of that, those substrates working well you know is it a challenge um it's great one thing i love about this area is that you you do tend to attract a very motivated motivated group of patients to work with who are okay. often very well researched by the time they end up on your desk doorstep and they they really are a delight to work with you know they're, they're typically very compliant with, with what you suggest and recommend and um, and, I, and I really see it as, as a partnership and, you know, to, to do the basic foundational work with patients, you know, working on fine-tuning um, their diet, um, re- repairing gut flora, repairing a leaky inflamed gut wall, um, in helping liver detoxification, clearing heavy metals out of the body, um, supporting mitochondria and, and, you know, and individual genetics around methylation and so on. This is all the basic stuff we do with, mm. with patients all the time. And the majority of patients will, you know, in addition to ex- exercise and yes. mindfulness yes. And, and all of those wonderful things, the majority of the patients get better just doing that work. Um, it was my, you know, baffling small small handful of chronic fatigue patients who I'd done all that work, foundational work with, who weren't getting better, that I could, I was thinking to myself, there must be some sort of infection, chronic infection going on here that I'm missing. And, and I was just so grateful to, to finally train in, in tick-borne illness and, and mould. And it's now, now it's, it's just amazing being able to help those patients now. Well, it's certainly a great holistic way to practice and we really appreciate you covering uh, so many great topics today. We really have addressed the pillar of, uh, of sleeping uh, because, it's, yeah. because obviously these sorts of things affect sleep and fatigue. And uh, Clearly, uh, we've uh, hit on uh, the nervous system as well. Maybe in, in, in summary, Tanya, uh, could you give our listeners three take-home messages, some three salient points that they can uh, 
put into action and, and to help them with these sorts of problems? Sure. I guess from a biotoxin perspective, um, if anyone you know who has the symptom of, of fibromyalgic pain, so chronic diffuse muscle and joint pain, you know, that really is a red flag to look for a biotoxin illness, whether it's mild or tick-borne illness. Um, don't never settle for, for that as a label and a diagnosis. It's a symptom that, that needs investigating for, for chronic infection, biotoxin infection. Yeah, right. Um, don't, if you're aware of water damage in your home or workplace or school, um, you know, please get someone uh, like Cameron Jones or a building biologist in to do an assessment. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's your, it's there as a warning that, that needs to be investigated and, and remediated and, and addressed once and for all. Um, and I guess um, a couple of other little take-home messages. Um, big believer in exercise um, at our tick-borne uh, illness, um, illness conference last weekend, we were talking about how apart from raising endorphins, exercise stimulates um, neurotropic um, derived, um, sorry, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, okay. which is what yep. helps our nerve cells to grow and yep. it helps our neuroplasticity. Awesome. Um, and then throw some good eels into the mix, you know, mm -hmm. things like your fish oil, your uh, omega-369 and things like evening primrose oil and borage oil, coconut oil for cooking, um, olive oil in your salads, ghee, butter, lecithin, all of those things help our neurons to grow and recover. So make sure we, we, we're all using the good oils on a, on a regular daily basis. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. And it's a great way to win. And I suppose when we talk about neurology and uh, brain, it's uh, those important fats. It's terrific. Well, that's what most of the brain is, isn't it? If it's, it's a fatty organ, we need to get the good fats in there to support it. Excellent. Thanks, Tanya, for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us t today on Backchat. Thank you for listening for Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with, with the Backchat podcast, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast, or visit us on iTunes. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with a thought, be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.